the night that Joan and I gave our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, I remember within five minutes I turned to her and I said, I don't have no intention of telling people about this. I'm not going to be one of those people that blabs about their faith. The next morning, I flew to Montreal, and I witnessed to the cab driver on the way to the factory. On the way back to the airport, uh, I came back with a friend, shared the Lord with him, and I don't know whether he ever came to the Lord, but his wife did, and she visited us a couple of weeks ago. I found it basically impossible, even though it was against my personality, to go public with the gospel. Joan and I have been involved as members or leaders or pastor in 13 churches. And of those 13 churches, five of them had to expand the building, and eight of them did not. And the five that had to expand the building were the five that the people decided they were going to tell their world about Jesus Christ. When Pastor Adam was between zero and one years old, Joan and I went to a church in Woodstock, and we walked in, and we were overcome by this wall that they had put up halfway up the sanctuary because so many people had left. There was only 29 people there. <clears throat> and it was discouraging, but the pastor was a good old boy from Kansas, and we fell in love with him, and he discipled us, so we decided to stay. I would walk through the factory because I, I was the personnel director, and uh, there was a union there, <clears throat> and the relationship between the two was very, very bad, and I found fault with both sides, actually. But I would walk through the plant, and I had a Bible on my desk. I wasn't that vocal, but I walked through the plant, just getting to know the guys, and this young woman named Chris a blonde stopped me one day and she said, what is it about you and your faith? And so I told her and she came to Christ. And the following Saturday night, her and her mother came to a, a prophecy conference and her mother gave her life to Christ. And the next day she called and said, my brother and his fiance are about to join a cult. Would you go and talk to them? So that next day I went to talk to them and they gave their lives to Christ and then they called me and said, we have a friend, would you, bring, would you come over here and talk to them about the Lord? I said, okay, Thursday night. So we went there on Thursday night, and nothing happened for the first 20 minutes. So I turned to this guy, Frank, who's a very open, frank guy, and I said, why do you think I'm here tonight? He said, well, I was told you were maybe going to buy my house. And I turned to this brand-new Christian who had lied to him to get me there, and I had to start from there, but they gave their lives to Christ. From that little blonde girl, about 30 people in the factory came to the Lord. Meanwhile, I came home one day, and Joan was crying, and Joan is not a crier, and I walked in, and I thought something must have happened to one of the children. She was crying quite loud. And I found out that she was weeping over a neighbor, a woman who was an older woman who had a medication problem, a husband that basically was not there for her in any way, and she was alcohol-induced sometimes, and Joan went over there and brought her a loaf of bread and talked to her. Long story short, this woman, Nellie, came to Christ. She died that Christmas Day following, and Joan was instrumental in organizing some of the things for the funeral, and at the funeral, her son and his wife came to the house, and they gave their lives to the Lord. Joan and I were transferred to the States. We came back about a year later. They invited us over, and they showed us literally a house full of people that they had led to the Lord, or the people that they led to the Lord had 
led to the Lord. I cannot, I cannot be ashamed of the gospel. But I had a big lesson to learn. <clears throat> when we were in Texas, I taught evangelism explosion. And that church today is about 10 or 12,000 people, but that's partly because Texas, everybody's moving there, and they grow just from the Yankees with U-Hauls that move into Texas. But those people did mobilize with their faith. I taught evangelism explosion, but I made a major mistake. I focused on technique because I had seen people come to Christ, and so I told them how they should do it. But there was one thing I never told them. I never told them about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I had seen extremes with the Holy Spirit that I didn't like, and so I basically took him out of my portfolio when I was sharing Christ. A few years later, we were in New Hampshire, and I was doing a family camp at a camp there, and all of our family was there, the whole family, and our daughters, and I don't even know whether we had any grandkids then. And it was Saturday night, and the atmosphere was really good, and uh, it seemed like God was working there. People just seemed to love the weekend. The music was great, and all of a sudden, my bride goes like this, and I, I just broke into a sweat. I'm not charismatic. Why would she be doing this? Jason didn't help. He leaned forward. He said, I think Joan has a question. And she didn't. <clears throat> we got back to our room later that night, and Joan said, did I do something wrong? I said, no, you didn't do anything wrong. It's just it was not something that I was used to. A few years later, at the Heritage Bible Chapel, when we got pretty big, a man and a woman walked in, and he was tall, and his arms were so long, and he put them up in the air all the time, and I I kind of fell in love with them, and I met with them, and I said, do you think this is the place for you? <clears throat> and he said, why, because I raised my hands? I said, no, I just want to know what your doctrine is. Well, his doctrine was different than ours, but he loved our church, and we loved him, and 10 years later, I married his child, his daughter, and they today have become close friends. I was so afraid of what I thought were some extremes with the Holy Spirit that I had written him out of the picture. And yet, listen to the very last words of our Lord on this earth. You will receive power, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So let's begin with the truth that I have neglected for years. I'd like us to look at John chapter 16, verse 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> this verse probably singularly has convicted me more than any verse in the entire Bible. John 16, 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Lord says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in Barry at this moment, convicting the world of those three things, their sin, the righteousness of Christ who paid for their sin, and judgment for those who do not come. So here's a key question. If the Holy Spirit is on earth as we speak, as Scarlett would say, as we speak, and the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin 
and righteousness and judgment and the Holy Spirit lives inside you and I, what should we be doing in our testimony to the world? We need to be proclaiming those same things. Whatever the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of, we should be telling the world about. And that is sin and righteousness and judgment. Now as we look at this topic of what I would call mobilizing, taking our gospel to the world, I believe there are three questions the Lord wants us to answer. And I would ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And these questions cannot be answered as a church. They must be answered personally. Our key text is going to be verses 14 to 16, but I'd like to set the stage, and I'd like to begin with verses 1 to 4. And I would like us to focus strongly on two words here. Look at verses 1 to 4, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul is a bondservant, an apostle, and he is set apart exclusively for the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul here is saying in verse 2, the gospel was promised long ago. Verse 3, the gospel is about God's Son, the Son of David, who, verse 4, rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel message is both clear and powerful. But then, as we come to verse 5, we see where Paul makes this gospel very personal. It says in Romans 1, verse 5, through whom we have received, there's our two key words coming, grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So you and I have received two things from the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and apostleship, the grace that saves us and the apostleship that sends us. The word apostleship means we are commissioned, we are sent ones. So in verses 1 to 5 here, we see who Christ is and why he came, and we see primarily what we're here to do, what God is calling us to do. Verse 5, we are to live by God's grace, and we are to be sent as apostles. Then after greeting the Roman Christians in verses 6 to 12, we'll skip past that, and telling them how he longs to see them, Paul here shows us what it means to receive grace and apostleship. Let's start with verse 13. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now that fruit is the fruit of the gospel, seeing people come to Christ. And then, as we come to our key verses this morning, verses 14 to 16, I would submit to you that this is one of the most exciting passages in the entire New Testament, but it is also one of the most convicting and one of the most challenging. <clears throat> you know, we know that Exodus 3:14, the Lord refers to himself as I am. As a matter of fact, he's called that 161 times in the Bible. But here in verses 14 to 16, Paul reveals the three great 
I am's for every Christian. And as we look at them, we need to ask ourselves this question. Can we and will we say what Paul says here in these three verses? But before looking at this text, let me say this, that I believe a great sin in the body of Christ in America today is the sin of silence. It is a sin that I have committed. As a matter of fact, about the only place that I saw a vibrant testimony of the gospel by a lot of people was in Singapore, where about a third of our population of our office there were believers, and they were very vocal about their faith. But I struggle with that. A man in Woodstock was suffering from cancer, and he wasn't about to, I wasn't about to pray with him in the factory, but I'd gotten to know him and like him, and I said, you want me to come to your house and pray for you? And he said, uh, I'd like that. So I went, and I shared the gospel with him and his wife, and I left. And then he said a couple of days later, would you ever come back and do that? And I said, yes. So I went back, and I prayed, and I gave them a bit of my testimony. Then just as we were being transferred to the U.S., he was in the hospital, and I had one last shot at him. So I went to the hospital, and I prayed with him. He had a 50-50 chance of surviving that operation. And I prayed with him, and I got in my car, and I left, and we moved to the U.S., and I never had any chance to follow up on him, but I had such a tremendous guilt because I told him about his sin, and I told him about the righteousness of Christ, but I never said to him, if you don't come to Christ, judgment is coming. I was a great two-thirds evangelist, but very reluctant to talk about the whole counsel of God. That's what Paul says in Acts 20, verse 27. He says, I did not shrink from proclaiming the whole gospel of God, but I did. Remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are preaching the resurrection to the Sadducees, and, or the Sadducees were there, and they were against them because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Do you remember what they were commanded to do? Only one thing. They weren't commanded to go to jail or to pay a fine or leave town. They were just told, speak no more in this name. You remember Peter's response? We cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. That's all Satan wants from us, is silence. He would settle for that. Now, with that background, let's look at God's three I am's here for his church, and let's ask ourselves, can we and will we say and live what Paul says here? And here's the first I am in verse 14. You and I need to be able to say to the Lord, I am in debt. We need to agree with God that we owe the world the gospel. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, the words under obligation literally translates here, one who's deep in debt, one who owes. And notice verse 14, we cannot be selective. Paul was obligated to the Greeks, those are the cultured people, to the barbarians, the non-Greeks, the uncultured, both to the wise, sophos in the Greek, the intellectuals, and to the foolish, the unintelligent. So Paul owed everyone the gospel. Now think about that. How about the Jews that whipped him and stoned him and put him in prison? You'd think that that should be a disclaimer on this. But listen to Paul describe the Jews 
who were persecuting him, stoning him, lashing him. He says in Romans 10:1, my heart's desire and my prayer is for their salvation. I believe that's a very hard lesson for us, but it's an important one. We owe everyone the gospel. As a boy in Nova Scotia, my family was deep in debt. They came and they took away the car. They came and took away our house. And bill collectors came to our house so often that as a small boy, my wife, my mother would turn off the light of the house so that the people wouldn't know we were home. And I remember bill collectors knocking at the door and then driving away because she wouldn't answer the door. But she would say, we owe it everybody. It wasn't really true, but it's true for you and I. We owe everybody here the gospel. We are under obligation, indebted to share the gospel with the cultured, the uncultured, the wise, and the foolish. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul says this, God is now declaring that all men everywhere should repent. So if God declares that all people everywhere should repent, who are we to be sharing the gospel with? All men, all people, everywhere. You see, that's why the Lord says in Mark 16, 15, we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I was very selective. I wanted a safe harbor. I wanted to preach the gospel to people that I thought would be responsive. God says I cannot do that. You see, in the word of God and in the heart of God, there is no such thing as silent Christianity or secret Christianity. Why? Because verse 14, we are obligated to share the gospel with all people. We owe the entire world the gospel. That even includes Montreal Canadian fans. There is nobody that we cannot have an obligation to. Now, here's the question, verse 14. If we say, I am in debt to the world, where does this obligation come from? Is it an obligation of duty? Yes. Mark 16, 15, we are commanded to go and preach the gospel to every creature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are to go as ambassadors to the world and tell them to be reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, our obligation is an obligation of duty. But the real obligation here is an obligation of love. <clears throat> Consider this for a moment. Isn't it interesting that in Mark chapter 12, when the scribe comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, what is the greatest commandment that the Lord gave him to? He didn't ask for two. He asked for the greatest commandment, and the Lord gave him two. Listen to the Lord in Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he adds, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> so why did the Lord give him two commandments instead of one? Here's why. Because if we truly, truly love our Lord, we will love the world he died for. We can't, we can't love the Lord and not love the world he loves and died for. And incidentally, that is everyone that God puts in your life and my life. When we love our neighbor, how can we do that? Because 2 Corinthians 5.14 says the love of Christ controls us. And when that happens, we will see the world as he sees it. When we were living in Austin, 
Texas, we, we, we flew down there. There was a new management team, a very high-tech division, and they took all the directors out for dinner as we got to know each other. And while we were there, there was a guy named Richard, and he was the director of marketing, and he knew that I was a born-again Christian, even though we had never worked before or even worked in the same city. And at the dinner table that night, <clears throat> they were talking about what we were going to do and how we were going to make this division run. He said, you know, there's only one thing that could make America great, and that is if they took every born-again Christian and killed them. Now, he said that knowing who I was and what I believed, and he was dumb because I was the VP of HR, so I could influence him to some extent. But he said that, and a chill came over the room our very first night together. The next morning in the office, I go over to his office to give him something that he had to sign or something like that, <clears throat> and he had a secretary, and she was a minority, and she was a sweet person, and she asked him if he would like to have a coffee, and his answer to her was about as obscene as you could get. And I turned to him when she left, and I said, Richard, you talk like that to these people, and one day I'm going to be coming in here, and I'm going to be firing you. He said, you go back to your corner office and stay there and mind your own business. Well, things did not go that well between him and I for obvious reasons. And about a year later, my boss was in London, England, and he called me and he said, you've got to fire Richard Cho. I said, why? He said, you've got to fire him right away because IBM will not let him on their campus anymore, primarily because he was obnoxious. I said, well, you're supposed to fire the vice presidents, and then I fire everybody else. He said, this has got to be done now before he goes to IBM. So I went in to his office, and I told him he was fired. And I can't repeat too much of what he said. Uh, he didn't want to accept it from me, but I said, well, whether you accept it or not, we're cleaning everything out, we're taking away your company car, we're your credit cards, and you're finished. The next morning, I had to fly to Germany. I got to Germany, and late at night when I was ready to go to bed, my boss, who was still in England, called me, and he said, you've got to go back. Richard Schaub is going insane. He's an emotional wreck. His wife called me. So I flew back the next morning. Janet, I don't think recalls this, but she went to school with Richard Schaub's daughter. When I landed from the airport, Janet said, how come you fired Patty Schaub's daddy? And I remember this is going to be tough. So I went to the house, not knowing what to expect. He was a broken man, and he prayed to give his life to Jesus Christ. And the following Sunday, he was in church. And you remember Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning? That was Richard's show. He was unbelievably set free. So we never know what our market is. We have absolutely no idea who God is going to move in in our lives. But if we love him with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, we will love the world he died for. In other words, the obligation here, the debt of verse 14, is an obligation both of duty to the Lord and love for people. Now here's a calibration point. <clears throat> even though we are in debt, even though we owe the world the gospel, that doesn't mean that we have to witness to every person who comes within 50 feet of us. That is a temptation. I know a man that I said to him after knowing him for 15 years, he shared the gospel with more people than anybody I ever met. 
<clears throat> and I said to him, how many people do you think that you've led to the Lord? His answer, none. And the problem was he just assumed that you were standing there and breathing regularly. You were a candidate. There was no introduction. There was no grace. He just did that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we owe the gospel to every person that comes within earshot. <clears throat> in Colossians 4.3, Paul says, pray that the Lord will open the door for the gospel. And when he does, it is stunning. When he does. I used to go on airplanes a lot, and I got to the point where I tried to remember to pray for the person beside me that maybe God would open the door. And most often it didn't happen. One time I was flying through Philadelphia, and I didn't have time for dinner, so I grabbed a chocolate bar, and I got on the plane to head back to Massachusetts, and that's all I had for dinner. When I got on the plane, <clears throat> there was a two-seater here, and I was in the aisle seat, and there was a woman in the window seat. And she was, she was black. And when I went to sit down, she turned. She must have wrenched her back to turn away from me to stare out the window. And I'm thinking she can't stare out the window for a full two-hour airplane ride. But the body language was horrible. And I thought she probably thinks I'm a racist. And that would be a natural thing for her to think sometimes. So I took my chocolate bar. And I thought, well, why not? So I tapped her on the back and I... So I went to take a bite, but the Lord told me, don't give up. So I tapped her on the back again, and I said, you're a woman, and this is chocolate. And so she took a bite, and we began to talk, and she poured out her heart to me, how she was running away to go to be with the wrong man in Worcester, Massachusetts. And we prayed together, and I gave her my address. I couldn't close the deal, but I came home heartbroken about that girl. The next morning, I called Joan and read her an email from Dallas, Texas. The woman said, I got off the plane. I could not go through with it. I turned around, checked my bags, came back to Dallas, went to that church you recommended, and the pastor led me to Christ. We have absolutely no idea where God is going to ripen the fruit. Now, not every encounter becomes an opportunity. But we have to be ready. The second thing is just that. The Lord wants us to say, I am ready to pay my debt. Look at verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Now when Paul says there, for my part, that's one word in the Greek, it's our word eagle, which basically means self. Paul's saying, I'm in, I'm committed. And the word eager here, prothumus, means more than being ready. It's a passionate readiness. It's a passionate readiness. One of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible is Matthew 23, where we read about the Lord looking at Jerusalem, who are about to crucify him and spit on him and take away his clothes and drive a spear in his side and put thorns on his head. And what does he say? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those who were sent to you, how I would have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. And I realized I don't love my world at all like that. He loved the people that were going to drive the sword into his flesh. When Paul says, I am eager, it must be a filling with a passion to share the gospel. Why? Because as I said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, 
The love of Christ will control us, preoccupy us. <clears throat> now, I expect that you might agree with me when I say it's a lot easier to say I am in debt, I owe the world the gospel, than it is to say I'm ready to pay that debt. <clears throat> Why? Because to be able to say I'm ready to pay that debt means the love of Christ must control us. But it's also true that the sin of silence reveals the lack of love for our Lord. Remember, the first commandment, that if we love God, will flow to the second commandment, to love our world and be ready to tell the world about him. So in verse 14, Paul says, I am in debt. I owe the world the gospel. But he's also able to say, I'm ready to pay my debt. And finally, here's the third thing the, war, the Lord wants each of us to be able to say to him. He wants us to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the word ashamed here means to be disgraced or dishonored. But the word power, dunamis, is where we get the word dynamite. So what God is offering us here is disgrace or dynamite. Disgrace at denying him before the world or the dynamite power that's unloaded when we share Christ. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, the day he sees the Lord. And in the meantime, Paul was not ashamed. But we also know that Christians can be and often are ashamed of the gospel. When I got to a new site one time and I put my Bible on my desk, I didn't go around hitting people with it, but I wanted the world to know where I stood. And the very first day I got there, a very loving man who I believe knew the Lord, he walked up to me and he looked around to make sure that nobody was looking, and he said, is it true that you know the Lord? And all I could think of is, why are we whispering? But that's sometimes where we are. He was a good man. He loved the Lord, but he was ashamed of the gospel. <clears throat> that's why the Lord says, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me, his prisoner. Consider this. The Roman Empire, as you know, was huge, and it was powerful, and it was majestic. I never realized how big it was until I, we had a plan in Leicester, England. I'd fly to London and take the train, and I was way up north in England. And I remember standing in a hotel that was called the William Carey Inn, named after the famous missionary who went to Africa or India. Uh, I'm standing there inside this holy room, and I look across, and I see a Roman bath. I could not believe that the Roman Empire extended that far north. Did you know that under the city of Paris, they have found a complete road built by the Romans 2,000 years ago? So the Roman Empire was huge and powerful. It was majestic, and it was cruel. But this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, with so many of his followers dying for their faith, why wouldn't Christians be ashamed of the gospel? Imagine Paul taking the message of this crucified carpenter to the splendor and power of Rome. 
with an emperor who demanded to be worshipped as God, with his army of hundreds and thousands trained, equipped, and cruel. And the army of Christ here is so small and so powerless. In fact, Christians were one of the made foods for the lions in Rome. And today, Christians in North America are increasingly mocked, and millions are being killed around the world. The day I landed in the U.S. in 1984 to start work there, Ronald Reagan had just freed the people who were hostage over in Syria, and they were coming back. And I remember saying, to God be the glory, one nation under God. These were not Christians, but that's where America was then. They were one nation under God. That's certainly not the case now. So why won't we be ashamed of the gospel? Well, here's why. When the 120 people came down from the upper room, you remember that in Acts chapter 2, and Peter cries out with all the guards, all the soldiers there, and the, Sa the Sadducees not wanting to ever talk about resurrection. And what does Peter say? Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Dangerous, dangerous thing to say. 5,000 people came to Christ. When Peter and John are told in Acts chapter 4, speak no more in this name, they refused. And 5,000 men plus women plus children came to Christ. So how can we be ashamed of the gospel when we see that kind of power? The emperors were unbelievably cruel. And they had the Christians actually fed to the lions. But 300 years later, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, the entire Roman Empire, had Bibles printed on the Roman printers. And as he was dying, these are the recorded last words by that man. Some say he came to Christ, I'm not sure. But here's what he said as he died. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. He acknowledged that Christ was the victor. So from 120 believers, Christianity became the official religion of Rome, which hasn't really worked out that well. But back then, it was very powerful. And do you know that today, even with Christians being slaughtered, Muslims, Christians are being slaughtered all over the world they are. But there are 2.2 billion professing Christians on earth today. Say half of them don't really believe. Okay, so it's 1.1 billion. That's four times the size of the United States population. Why? Because verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for blind Bartimaeus, for Martin Luther, for Billy Graham, and for you and for me. You see, when God's people refused to be silent, the power of God was unleashed and mighty Rome buckled, mighty Rome buckled under the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have it that on good information that it's exactly the same in Barrie, Ontario on July 23, 2017. When the gospel is preached in the power of God, God will move. In verse 16, his power flows to everyone who believes. <clears throat> I'll close with this, I believe, wonderful and life-changing truth. That the power of the gospel not only flows through us, to everyone who believes. Colossians 1.29, it says that same gospel that flows through us, listen, works mightily in us. 
It flows through us, but it works mightily in us. Joan and I, years ago, went to the Ontario Science Center. I don't even know if it still exists, but they had a, a laser beam there. And when they turned it on, they would have somebody connect to it, and they would, you'd probably know more about this, a million volts or some ridiculous amount, and it would flow through that body, and they wouldn't be affected. I thought, that is, that is amazing. But when we share the gospel, the power of God not only flows through us like a laser beam, it works mightily in us. There's the difference. The gospel not only flows through us, it also works mightily in us, transforming us, strengthening us, and filling us with the presence of God. You see, that's why Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power. It doesn't say, you're going to borrow it. You're going to have it flow through you. It says you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That word receive in Acts 1.8, lambano, means you take hold of it, you get it, and you seize it. So the Lord is telling us that the power of the gospel not only works mightily through us, but mightily in us. So the bottom line, the power of the gospel that convicts and draws sinners to the cross also transforms the life of those who proclaim it. If someone asked me, and I believe, or Joan, what's the reason that you follow Jesus Christ? What are the great evidences? I believe we would say, I didn't check with her, but I know it's true. There are three reasons why we follow Jesus Christ. Number one, transform life. We're not the same people. We are totally not the same people. She was awful before. Well, I was, but a transformed life was one of those great reasons why we follow the Lord. Here's the second great reason we follow the Lord. Answered prayer that we cannot deny. Prayer that we simply had to say that was God. And in one minute or less, I'll tell you this story, we're living in Sarnia. We just got a house, and uh, Laura and Jana were born. Leslie wasn't born at that point, and we were tight for money, and we had a nice older home, and uh, Joan was a woman who would pray for things because she knew there was pressure on me financially back then, and we had these wild technicians who worked for us, and one guy partied so much he was in the hospital twice. The second time he was in, his life was in danger. That's how much he partied. I went to visit him, and he said, that's it. I'm through. I'm not going to party anymore. He said, I've got an entire apartment full of furniture. Take that of furniture and give it away to one of your missionaries. And he said, I even got a pair of drapes there that I've never even put up. Take them. So I took the furniture. We gave it to a missionary, and I walked in the house with these drapes, not knowing what to do with them. And Joan told me that she had been praying for those drapes to fit our bedroom window. Even in little things, we have seen the amazing answers to prayer. So reason number one, why we follow Christ, a transformed life that we never had without him, an answered prayer that we can't deny, but the most, the biggest one is the power of the gospel we have seen in so many lives. <clears throat> I think Joan would probably verify this, that at Heritage, 
if we had 700 people, I would say at least half of them came to the Lord there. That's the power of the gospel. And it all starts when you and I say to the Lord, I'm in debt. I owe the world the gospel. I'm ready to pay my debt. And I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that when we come to the word of God, we come to something wonderful, something powerful. And we thank you, Father, that that power unlocks and flows into our lives from the moment we come to Christ. But, Father, sometimes we're, we're content to be in your kingdom and not necessarily do what you want us to do. So, Father, I would pray that there would be an awakening in every church in Barrie, that no matter how things are inside the church, we simply must individually and corporately pray for our neighbors. Ask them, Lord, to come to Christ. Ask the Lord to strengthen us to go and tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, give us the names of people that we live near. And let us begin praying. And let us watch you Give us an increase that will change our lives and our church. In Jesus' name, amen.